You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hello, yoga teacher. Welcome to episode 23 of the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Today's episode is an insider look at an unconventional yoga studio business model. The insight that my guest Kaya shares with us would be helpful for any yoga teacher who's considered opening their own studio. And it would also be helpful to all of us yoga teachers who are independent contractors meaning that you work for yourself, and usually that means you work several places. So if you are always on the lookout for new opportunities and places to teach and ways to teach that make sense to you, please keep listening. I first met Kaya in a Facebook group that we're both in, and she has been an enthusiastic supporter of the podcast from day one. She's incredibly generous with her knowledge and insight from over 18 years of teaching, and I really love hearing her perspective on a variety of topics because she teaches an unusual style of yoga called Shri. Kaya is active in the Yoga Teacher Resource Facebook group, and so you may recognize her from there because, like I said, she's super generous with her responses, and she's incredibly knowledgeable. If you're not a member of the Yoga Teacher Resource Facebook group, but you want to join us there, I'd love to have you. You can find the link to join by going to teachingyoga.net slash join. This is what Kaya has to say about the style of yoga that she teaches. Shri decompresses the spine, resolves pain and depletion, reverses hypermobility, and increases what she calls the inner nectar of rejuvenation. Kaya takes dedicated teachers through boutique trainings and serves as master faculty in several yoga therapy and Ayurveda programs. Her work weaves the full spectrum of the Vedic tradition with an emphasis on cultivating inner peace in the midst of life's activity. I think we all need that. Kaya offers in-depth trainings for modern yogis with her warm and inclusive storytelling approach. She is enthusiastic about conveying authentic principles and practices with a divine mothering approach to help others live yogic lives. Kaya owns a therapeutic yoga center in California's Bay Area, where she lives with her husband and their children. From her studio and beyond, she runs trainings, mentoring programs, and online courses. On social media, Kaya is known for her uncurated portrayal of a modern yogic life in real time with everything from Ayurvedic food for her kids to her extremely helpful and popular Sanskrit Saturdays, that's hashtag Sanskrit Saturdays, on Instagram, where each week she unpacks the correct meaning and pronunciation of a commonly misused Sanskrit word. Let's go ahead and jump into the conversation with Kaya, and I'll see you on the other side. Kaya, welcome to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. I'm super happy to have you here talking about your cooperative yoga studio structure and how other people can get inspired and learn from your experience to create similar studios. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I love the podcast. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. 
Let's start with some basics. Can you share with us what the structure of your studio is and especially how it's different from most of the studios that the audience is familiar with? Sure. So can I start with a little background because it might help? (laughs) Of course. Of course. Yes. um, I never really wanted to have a yoga studio for starters. I was really clear Um, by the time I was going through advanced yoga and yoga therapy training that I did not want to be a studio owner because I had seen how much stress that entailed, at least in the models that I had witnessed. And I had seen that people that loved yoga and loved teaching yoga would open a studio and suddenly become consumed by being an administrator. And Mm. I didn't get into teaching yoga to become an administrator. So actually years before the studio that I have now fell into my lap. I was in a yoga business skills training. And I would say I was one of the only yoga teachers in a room of about 25 teachers that did not want to have a yoga studio. Um, The rest of them did. Yeah. Almost everyone, I would say about 20 out of 25 teachers, their ultimate plan was to own their own studio. That was sort of the end that they had in sight. My ultimate plan was to teach advanced yoga teachers and dedicated students of yoga. And I I was very clear I didn't want to have a yoga studio for the reasons I just mentioned. So um, as a teacher, I had almost exclusively always taught yoga as as a tenant. So I would rent space from yoga studios or even churches, community centers at an hourly rate and be very independent as a teacher. And there was one studio that was sort of my home base where I was renting almost, I was in there more than any other teacher, that's for sure. I was paying an hourly rate and um, was very happy in that situation. That was my home base studio. The owner of that space did not herself really use the space. She just rented it out to teachers, mainly me. And about 10 years into my renting that space, she wanted to let go of the space. And so she asked me if I wanted to take it on. It was pretty, it was an easy yes, because if I said no, I would be sort of homeless as a yoga teacher. Um, And at the time, the rent was relatively reasonable for the area in which I lived. So I took it on, clearly knowing that I was going to continue my own mission of really focusing on just being a teacher and make the studio as simple a model as possible for myself. That was one of the reasons I decided to run it the way that I do, which I'll explain in a moment, to keep it simple for me to not be consumed by being an administrator. The second thing was that I knew from a business perspective that for me as a yoga teacher, I had been able to earn a decent living as a teacher who was renting space and being independent. I think I taught only once for a period of about a year or two as an employee or a contractor of a yoga studio. So I I knew just from that one experience how impossible that model is for the teacher. I think I was making $25 a class or something like that. When I was renting space, I was making anywhere from $80 to $200 a class. So I knew for my colleagues, that the model that I was going to run the studio at would have potential for more success. So there's sort of a, 
those are the top two reasons, simplicity for me and for this, my colleagues or for other yoga teachers, the possibility of actually earning a fair wage for their skill. So the model is simply that as the studio owner, I teach in the space myself and I rent the space out at an hourly rate to other teachers, uh, healing practitioners, workshop leaders, and so on for their programming. Once they rent this space from me, they're completely independent. They engage in the financial relationship directly with their students and clients. I'm out of the picture other than leasing the space out to them. And do they, uh, is there a central website? Is there, tell me how you do cooperate. What are the ways that you work together? Sure. So first of all, there's the space itself. So we have upgraded the space since take, we, meaning my husband and I, he helps me run the space. We upgraded the space since we took it over and we maintain that space. We have a hundred blankets in there for props and all the yoga mats and something like 50 yoga blocks and chairs and all the props that you would need. We specifically make this space more of a healing therapeutic space. It's eco-friendly. So we've created the space and we sustain the space, keep it clean and tidy and all of that. So the space, number one, and number two, the, the website. Yes. So I have a central website and teachers, when they come on, they for ongoing teachers, it's part of the deal. They get to be on the website. Teacher bio, link to their website, um, you know, their contact information, and a schedule. Workshop leaders and people that are renting less frequently, you know, on a non-ongoing basis, they pay an additional fee to be listed on our website. Sometimes they don't want it because they have their own you know, list and following and site to promote. But sometimes they do and we'll even include their, you know, PayPal button or whatever if they want that on our site. So the website. I do not do um, additional marketing outside of some, um, you know, Facebook postings for, this, for the studio. Okay. So basically you do have a social media presence for the studio mm -hmm. and with that social media presence, you will promote the different classes going on, but that's the extent of your marketing. Yes. Okay. And what are the responsibilities from the teachers? Well, marketing is one, right? So it's in their best interest to promote themselves and their classes and their skill set to fill their classes. So the rent remains stable. Once they sign a lease, they have a stable uh, cost to run their class. So obviously, the more full their classes are, the more money they bring home. So it's incumbent on them to promote what they're doing and to sustain a following um, of students and clients. Um, so that's one thing that they do. Obviously, they keep the studio neat and tidy. They're responsible for, you know, arriving on time for the students and leaving on time for the next teacher to take over. And, you know, we have a list of 
sort of opening and closing rules because I don't have a front desk person. Again, I don't want to be the front desk person. I don't want to be the administrator. And that's an extra cost to me to pay someone else to do that. So they do their own. We have a front desk area and they are their own admin for the time that they're in the space. Um, so they're responsible for all of that, for charging their students for, yeah, all of those details that go into managing, running a class. I, I did forget to mention, I think that I do do about a monthly newsletter to our list to let people know about schedule additions, changes, teachers coming on, teachers taking maternity leave, which we've had multiple <laughs> times in the last couple of years. So um, every month there's a newsletter that goes out and that's included um, as part of their benefits as teaching in our yoga studio. Who cleans the space? We do pay for a cleaning service. <laughs> so I think it's helpful to share that Kaya, you're in the Bay area, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and so when we're thinking, when we talk numbers with Kaya, then we have to be aware that we're looking for the U S this is one of the, the highest priced Right. Regions of the country to live. And so all costs are going to be, we're, we're, we're always going to be talking on the high end. Um, so when you, when I ask her questions about money, you can extrapolate that to where you live. Do you live in New York? Well, then it might be pretty comparable. Do you live in, uh, you know, Idaho? <laughs> Idaho? Yeah. Then you're going to, you're going to like, pair these numbers down. Don't pass out. But Although I, I do, you're going to ask me about the rent. Is that yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah. I'm a, yeah. And I do keep my rental rates actually low for the market. I've been lucky that my, <clears throat> excuse me, my rent, my rent is a little below market value as well. And so I'm not gouging the teachers. And I'm also, just to be clear, I'm also not using the, the rent from other teachers as my own main source of income. So we can talk about that if you want in a little bit about sort of what I see as the three prongs of a yoga studio and why I'm not using the studio as a means of generating a ton of income. That'd be great. Um, but yeah, you can take that into account when I, when I share my prices, I'm actually pulling it up on our website. Cause I don't keep that all in my brain. It's one of the things I love about, again, not being the admin person is I don't need to keep all this in my brain. It's not been my main focus. <clears throat> so I could tell you, you know, all kinds of things about my own work, but when it comes to things like how much I charge for this studio rent, I've got to pull it up myself. So when I have it all, it's, it's, publicly available on our website to see. <clears throat> so it's $45 an hour for a one-time program. In other words, if you're coming in and you're going to do a three-hour workshop once at our studio, you're going to pay $45 an hour. Okay. And then what about for ongoing people? Right. So then it goes down pretty significantly. Um, $35 an hour for a, a series or an ongoing program. So if you teach weekly or even monthly or even seasonally, 
you're going to pay actually $35 an hour because I, I want to reward in the same way that as teachers, you know, or studios will do this, they'll reward students for having a pass or membership or buying a package of classes or sessions. It's the same. I take that the same for charging rent. So if you're going to be an ongoing or repeat offender as a renter from me, then your rent goes down. So $35 an hour. If you're going to be in our space on a somewhat regular basis. And then actually a lot of people teach 90 minute classes. And so for a 90 minute class, it's $45 if it's ongoing. It gets a little bit complicated because I sort of have a tier program wherein the longer time frame you're in the space or the more frequently you're renting, you pay less. So for what's the bottom of the tier? The bottom of the tier is if you're paying, if you're the bottom of the tier is actually a non prime time private session rental between nine to five on weekdays. So that's non prime time for private sessions, which are an hour. It's $25 an hour, which is way below market value. I have, um, a studio in my area very nearby who rents their space out in a similar way, they charge $45 an hour for that. Okay. Well, and so for, for comparison, for people who live elsewhere, I live in a small city that is very popular. So we end up having pretty high rents Mm -hmm. compared to a similar size city. That's not so popular but definitely not as high as San Francisco. And I would say that our rents would be somewhere around 25 to 35 an hour. Also, that would be kind of market market rate. Somebody charging more than 35 an hour, it would be like a really fancy space. And that would be kind of, a lot of people wouldn't pay that here. But, you know, again, just different different markets are going to bear different rates. So for you... 25 to 45 an hour, basically, depending on lots of different factors. And do you mind sharing what your monthly rent is? Sure. Um, It is. Oh, and I'll just add one thing. So yeah, the range is 25 to 45. um, And then I also have day rates because I'll have people that want to do a one day or two day workshop. Actually, twice a year, I have a Chinese medicine school rent for me for about a two week time frame from nine to five. So they get a special rate because that's a huge chunk that they're in there. So, but yeah, I have a day rate and weekend rate as well, because I love getting people in there for those kind of immersive programs. That's really win, win. So uh, my rent with utilities is about $13.50 a month. And it's an 800 square foot space for the teaching space with an additional, um, we call it the prop room. It's a huge, like 200 square foot closet where I allow ongoing teachers to store any additional props, teaching materials. We have materials in there as well for teaching that is available for renters to use. Like I have a big, you know, fold out table and a skeleton named Sven and a huge roll around, you know, whiteboard on an easel all that stuff, you know, reference books and all that is in the prop room. And when the massage or Chinese medicine school comes, they keep 10 massage tables in that prop space. So 
there's that and a private bathroom and all that. So my rent is very reasonable for the Bay Area. And it's partly because of some rent control going on. I've been in there myself since 2013, but I took over the lease from the previous tenant. And so I took on a lease that was already pretty low. She had had it for the five years previous. And what kind of neighborhood is it in? It is in a neighborhood that actually has a strong um, Native American history and then an industrial history after that because it's on the bay in in the East Bay of the San Francisco Bay Area um, in a town called Emeryville. And it had been very industrial and now like many industrial places is becoming sort of a hipster up and coming area. So where 10 years ago, people were coming to my studio from surrounding areas in the last five years, I've had a ton of people coming in because they just moved into the neighborhood. And I never had that 10 years ago. So now it's, there's a lot of fancy loft buildings going up and kind of a a reinvigoration of this neighborhood. That's the other reason why my rent is pretty low is because this was not a hot spot when I was originally there. And now it is. It's also very conveniently located in terms of freeways. So I do have people coming from a lot of surrounding areas because also what we have going on in the studio is very unique for the area. So we have people that drive an hour to come to classes and programs in our space. So there's a lot of factors that, you know, are supporting you, but ultimately what has sustained your studio, it sounds like, is the uniqueness of your offerings. That's definitely what has sustained me as a practitioner who is in the studio. So as one of the teachers in the studio and the main teachers that are ongoing in our space are teachers that have studied to teach with me. So we all teach this, the main teachers in this space all teach the same form of yoga, which is very unique in the area. There's very little of it in the Bay Area. Actually, in, in the country, there's very little of it. In the world, there's very little of it. So people do come for that. What's it called? It's called Shri, uh, Spinal Release Yoga or Soma Release Yoga, S-R-Y, Shri. And Shri is also the name of, the, of Lakshmi, the mother goddess. So do you want to go into what you were alluding to earlier about the three? Yeah, three pillars, the three prongs of what, what upholds a yoga studio or what I see as the three, they're the three parties of a yoga studio. Maybe someone else can, you know, say more than I can about this because again, I'm sort of the reluctant yoga studio owner. Um, But this is how I see it. We have three parties in a yoga studio. We have the students, we have the teachers, and we have the studio. And what I've witnessed being in the yoga world these last 18 years is most of the studios that are out there that are running on the studio model that we're most familiar with, the primary winner, if we can say that, is the studio. So the studio is looking to generate income. And the teacher and the students are the means for generating income for the studio. 
The studio is the end. The students and the teacher are the means to that end. I'm going to I'm going to jump in for a minute and slightly defend the studio owners. Yeah. Sure. yeah. I was going to say more, yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, I mean, I think that I think that that is more accurate when you're looking at big studios. When you're That's looking at talking about little big, studios. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Then you have these studio owners who are really stuck between a rock and a hard place because they open their studio with these big hearts and these really wonderful intentions and the market forces push them into that model, but that's not necessarily where they want it to be. And I have talked to a lot of studio owners who feel very conflicted and they don't want it to be that they're using the students and the teachers, you know, They they want to be of service, but they aren't sure, you know, because of market forces, it is very difficult for them. And just like you said, they become consumed with administration. Absolutely. Yeah. And I did uh, 100%. um, I wasn't meaning to say anything critical about studio owners, though I am in an environment in the Bay Area where those, those larger uh, sort of more corporate studios have been taking over and buying out those small studios that really can't survive under the pressure of the market demands and the cost of running a business, unfortunately. And absolutely, like all of those 20 yoga teachers that were in that business skills program that I was in, they had these big hearts and these dreams about sharing their skill and supporting students and supporting other teachers. And that was the idea was that the studio was the means for that. So what I mean to say is that just objectively speaking, not speaking anything about the heart and mind of the people behind the studio, but objectively speaking, the way that a lot of the studios are sort of forced to run and the way that the the model has been um, in most cases is that whether that was the intention or not, over time due to the pressure of the market, it becomes that just to sustain and survive, the students and the teachers have to become the means for the survival of the studio. And you're absolutely right. All these small studio owners are really stuck between a rock and a hard place. And I really, really feel for them. And I'm like, you know, I want there to be another way. My way isn't necessarily the best way either. The reason I started contemplating this a few years ago is because I was trying to figure out, is there a way for all three parties to come out winning? And if someone comes up with a model for that, I would love to know about it. (laughs) Absolutely. I, I am with you. So it sounds like your model has kind of flipped this on its end and the studio becomes the means for both the students and the teachers to benefit. Exactly. So I have a very strong relationship myself to the student-teacher relationship, the parampara, we call it in Sanskrit, the lineage of student to teacher to student to teacher, parampara. That's really the only reason why any of us today are even talking about yoga is because yoga has been passed down through a lineage from teacher to student. And that's the heart of the yoga tradition is that teacher-student relationship. And so the studio, the way that I run the studio, the idea is that the studio is the means for upholding and supporting the student-teacher relationship. So we're, that's why 
we are, we're really out of that relationship. We're not standing between the financial relationship. We're not, we're not standing between the communication relationship between the teachers and the students. They have their own relationship. We're just the support for that to ensue in its own natural way with integrity. We don't have any underlying need to be involved in that relationship. And then the students, um, therefore, <clears throat> aren't pressured. Again, this doesn't necessarily happen in small studios, but in large studios, the students are pressured to, um, I watched this when I taught in a larger studio, the students were pressured to buy a large membership package and then attend tons of classes with all of the teachers. And they were fed the idea that, you know, all yoga is the same, all the teachers are the same, come to tons of classes, come multiple times a day, because of course the studio would win the more uh, large membership packages were being purchased. But what that meant was that nobody was really digging a well in terms of the students with one teacher or one form of yoga. They were just kind of all over the place. Whereas we can say with confidence, here, check out our studio, try a few teachers, and then you may like several of these teachers. You may resonate with a few teachers or different styles and approaches, or you may pick one and dig a well with them. And that's either way is fine with us. You are free to, you know, dig a well or to pick and choose and, and play mix and match or jump around as suits you as an individual student. So the student wins in that way, and then the teacher winning is that they're engaging in that relationship and they have the potential to generate much more income. But to be clear, the studio, if we're having, if we're talking winners and losers, the studio loses. The studio is not generating income. And the only reason that this works for me is because I am a teacher in the space, generating income as a yoga educator and yoga therapist in my own right. I love it. <laughs> it's, you know, it's one of my passions to help yoga teachers think outside the box of what other people are doing, what they're seeing around them as ways to make yoga a central part of their life. And I think that's, you know, that's why so many of us go through teacher training and become yoga teachers is because we want to center yoga in our lives and the way that our culture is set up, the thing that you are allowed to center in your life is your family and your vocation. Mm -hmm. It's not that there aren't people who are successfully have another vocation and are centering yoga, but our culture is not set up to support that. No. And years ago I read, I think it was in the yoga journal, someone said, the worst thing I ever did for my yoga practice was become a yoga teacher. And I see that, you know, in a, some of the social media groups of yoga teachers that I'm in, how many yoga teachers are struggling to sustain their own practice because of all of the pressures. If you're, a, if you're running a studio, that's a huge amount of pressure. If you are a teacher running around teaching 15 classes a week to make ends meet, that's a huge amount of pressure. And we're just taking all of that. We, we've got into yoga to, to have less pressure, you know, to resolve inner pressure. And 
the fact is that so many yoga teachers then just carry that pressure and then some into trying to run a heart-centered, caring, helping business and career. And I want teachers to earn a living doing what they do because it's really important work. And so I don't want yoga teachers teaching 15 classes a week and then burning out and changing careers or going back to a different career because the world needs you. And so, yeah, I'm doing my best to make it possible for that to happen. But also, you know, maybe that people listening to this will take a shift in their approach to running their studio or see another way if they're struggling with the way they're running it. And they may be doing the other model and it's working really well and good for you. I couldn't do it myself. That's why this works for me. But if it's not working for you as a studio owner or you're thinking of starting a studio, but you're overwhelmed at the administrative side, this is another way to think about doing it. But also for teachers to consider that there's another way to uh, run your business in terms of, you know, looking for opportunities to rent space or talking to studio owners and saying, could I, could I work it this way with you? Or how can we make this work for all of the parties involved and not just fall, not just to succumb to $25 per class or whatever is out there. But that takes time. You know, I'll tell teachers, you have to give it at least six months to build a following. If you don't want to build a following or you don't have a following that's going to go where you are, this is not the place for you. If you want to just show up and teach classes, then go to a studio that's going to pay you an hourly rate or per head and they're going to promote you and your classes. And sometimes for new teachers, that's a really good way to start. Go to those other studios and build a following, you know, and build your skill set over time and focus on teaching and then later do a model where you have to think about the business side of things. So this has to be a right fit, whether you're a studio owner or a teacher. Not all teachers want to be responsible for cultivating the relationship, for being responsible for the money. You know, it has to be the right fit. Yeah. And even though there's no timeline because we all come to teaching yoga from with, you know, different life experiences, if you're a 20 or 30 year practitioner, and then you start teaching, there's going to be a different timeline than if you have been practicing for six months, and then you take a teacher training. But really, this type of an endeavor, I mean, what I see around me is that maybe five years (laughs) teaching experience would be the minimum of time devoted, just because we don't have a lot of mentorship and um, and supervised teaching as part of our training yeah. at this point that we, you know, the first years of teaching are basically continued training. Absolutely. So, so you wouldn't, you know, for most people, again, this is not a blanket rule, but most people are not going to have the resources to devote to a business like this and to developing themselves as a teacher. But if you don't develop yourself as a teacher first, the the other part, it's not going to work. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's something that I've really noticed. Um, I think it's really blooming right now in, in a not positive way because of social media, among other pressures. This, this pressure that yoga teachers have right out of the gate from a 200 hour yoga training, they're already, 
immediately stressing about the business side of things before they've even taught their first class. They're like, I've got to build my website and I've got to... And, you know, when you and I started teaching, there were no yoga teacher websites. I didn't have a business card. You know, there were flyers and word of mouth. And you had time to just cultivate your skill. You had time to mentor with someone. As I, I said recently to teachers that are, that are training with me, I can't teach you how to teach. And they sort of dropped their chins to the floor. What do you mean you can't teach me how to teach? We're in a teacher training. You know, and I'm like, I can give you the skills. For teaching. I can give you the tools, but I can't actually teach you how to teach. That happens in the field. You have to just do it. So I think I'm so glad to hear you say five years because I would have said the same thing and been afraid to get my head chopped off because people are like right out of the gate going like, I need to be earning a full-time living as a yoga teacher. I did 200 hours and we're like, that doesn't work that way. For then, a very few people, it does, right? Yeah. <laughs> the rare, I mean, but it's almost like the exception that proves the rule because if you look at them and you dive into their history, you're like, oh, but of course. Sure. Maybe they have another background. And also there's just luck. You know, some people have luck and luck isn't necessarily related to skill. You could have some, some of the most skilled teachers. I mean, I have colleagues that have been yoga therapists for 30 years and nobody knows who the heck they are. <laughs> they don't have celebrity. They don't have the karma or, or whatever for celebrity. They have a lot of skill and they're amazing at what they do. And they're in their quiet little circle and, you know, their little following knows about them. So <laughs> there's a lot of different ways that this can pan out. And the best thing you can do when you're, when you're a yoga teacher in the beginning is to just get out there and keep teaching. And in those cases, I would say, yeah, go ahead and teach for $25 a class or teach per head or teach for free because in the field is where you build the skill that later two, three, four, five years down the line is going to allow you to be successful and be skilled and be making a true impact in people's lives. Yeah. I like that we're on the same page on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I know it feels like we're alone sometimes with that kind of perspective. <laughs> So when, if, if we can bring the, the conversation back around to the studio model, I have a few follow-up questions to help people who might be interested mm. in, in taking this on. Um, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but are there any other qualities? Who is the person that you think this type of studio model would work best for? I know you've already mentioned they are a teacher. They want to keep teaching. They have a following and they have some amount of experience aging. Are there any other qualities that you think would be really helpful in deciding whether or not this is the right path? That's a good question. I'm trying to think about the teachers that have been in my studio that have been most successful. I mean, I would say the more skilled they are at what they do in terms of teaching or whatever kind of practitioner they are, healing practitioner, wellness practitioner, yoga, the more skill you have truly, the more successful you'll be in this way. Because for example, I charge, while my rental rates are below market value, my yoga classes are way at the top of the market. What I charge students to come to my classes 
is very high relative to other studios in my area. I can do that because I'm very good at what I do and people are willing to pay for the quality of teaching that they get. And that's not just true for me, that's true for the teachers that do the best in this model at my studio. They're very good at what they do. They're doing continuing education on a regular basis. They are, that's primary, is that they're good at what they do. If you're good at what you do, that's the best business model of all. Just have the best product or the best service. I definitely agree with you. And I also want to make a little plug here (laughs) for being clear on your niche. Yes. Not just about being good at what you do. It's being good at communicating what you do to the people who you help the best. So for example, you know, you were talking about some of the, your colleagues who have been teaching for a really long time and they're not well known. And that's fine. They may be successful by their own definition of success and totally happy. But there can be two yoga teachers who are equally skillful. And one of them knows exactly who they serve and knows exactly how to communicate with that type of person, that person, their avatar. And another person just as skillful, but isn't clear on their niche and isn't going to be as successful at charging more you know, because you might have the same number of people in your class, but when you are really, when your language is very clear and your target student is very clear, they will pay almost anything to come. Yes. Yes. And that really was the second piece I was going to say. And I love that you talk about the niche and you're so good at helping people find their niche and describe their niche. So your, your niche is niching. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, one is being good at what you do. And the other piece is having a good head for business is what I usually say. And that includes the niching, the communicating about what you do. And it doesn't mean, I say head for business, meaning the capacity or the willingness to gain the capacity and the skill for it. Because not everybody really wants that. Mm -hmm. You know, so you have to have skill or be willing to build your skill in what you do. And then have a head for an interest in building the skill for running a business. Because, yeah, if you're not communicating about what you're doing for whom, then no one's coming. And then you don't get to use your skill and help people. So absolutely. In fact, there's there's something in turning off the people that aren't a fit, that aren't your niche. And somewhere on our website, we have an FAQ about our particular style about Shri. And it says, you know, it talks about the cost of our classes, the, the, the classes in that style. And it says right up front, these are definitely going to be the most expensive classes you're going to find in the area. And here's why. And if you want cheaper yoga classes, those abound. And here there are a few local studios where you can get that. And if that's what people want, I am more than happy to send them away and attract more of the people that are a fit for who we are, what we do. And that includes what we charge for, for who we are and what we do. So good. Yes. I'm so <laughs> glad you said that. I'm so glad you talked about the fact that you, you actually charge more for your yoga classes because this is exactly within the theme of you get to set your own rules. When you have a clear niche and your niche is not a saturated one, 
you get to set your own rules and that's exactly what you're doing. You're, mm-hmm. you're redefining the yoga studio. You're setting your own rules and you can thrive that way. Yeah. And I think, you know, to go back also to the three parties, um, you know, if you're running a studio with the more conventional, more familiar model, one thing to look at is actually just raising the cost of classes and then increasing what you can pay your teachers and increasing your income as a studio. Because I think, you know, we're always, this is a whole other conversation that's out there about, you know, people in the holistic field undercharging for what they do. And that includes yoga studios. So one of the studios that I send other people to in my area that are looking for cheap classes, they um, charge $7 a class. So of course they're struggling. And of course their teachers are struggling. And the students are struggling too, really. They're getting cheap yoga, but what's the value? For them in their lives? What's their commitment? How much are they getting out of it when they're putting in so little? And I'm glad that there are, are cheap classes out there and even free opportunities out there, but I don't think that should be the norm. I think charge the, the true value of what people get from yoga, which is so amazing. And then you have enough to also make free offerings, low income offerings. We always, I always in every class have someone that's coming um, on a scholarship or, you know, with financial aid. And I'm able to do that because I'm charging what the skill is worth most of the time. And so I'm always able to have people coming for free or at a very reduced rate. So I think the norm shouldn't be the $7 class. The norm should be have everybody winning, <laughs> have everybody committing and, and valuing what we do, the teachers, the, stu- the, the students, and the studio, and having that be reflected in the cost of classes and what teachers are paid and so on, and then have enough, to, enough left over to make it available for people who can't afford that price. I hear a lot of yoga teachers bemoaning, especially more experienced long-term yoga teachers, bemoaning the shallowness of yoga culture or the kind of the popular yoga culture and our conversation and your comments about, you know, the way that cheap yoga incentivizes people to take a lot of classes and, and really not to commit to any classes and not to commit to any teachers it really, um, I think that's that's a big part of the reason that there's such a lack of understanding amongst yoga practitioners about what yoga actually is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so true. And as you're saying that, I'm, the word that keeps coming up for me is commitment. And, you know, commitment is a huge part of the yoga tradition. You're committing to yourself through yoga. You're committing to your life, to your relationships, to your process of spiritual growth. You're committing as a student to your teacher. Your teacher, the teacher commits to the students. The studio, if there's a studio involved in this relationship, is committing to yoga and to student and to teacher that there's this commitment, which is one of the translations of the Sanskrit word shraddha, which usually people translate as faith. It can also be translated as commitment. When we commit to something, our faith in it grows. And then the more our faith in it grows, the more our commitment grows. And that's that digging a well, that 
that depth? And what do we commit to that costs seven bucks? <laughs> it really degrades what we're doing. And we should, you know, one of my teachers would say, yoga teachers should be some of the highest paid people in our society, not the lowest paid. We're doing really important work. Well, you know, it also comes back to though the standards, you know, should somebody who just graduated from a 200 hour training be one of the highest paid people in the world? Or are we talking about the teachers who've been teaching for 30 years? <laughs> right. Completely. Yeah. Let's not forget like anyone coming, you know, out of school, you're not at the top of your field at that point. And that's okay. Hey, take time. That's what I was saying about the social media. There's all of this comparison to yoga celebrities and so on, and what things look like on the outside, and what people's um, process looks like 10, 15, 20 years into teaching, not what it looked like. At the beginning, I taught one class a week, I had another full time job, and I had two students coming to my class for a year. And I then the, the second year, thing. I had three. Yeah. <laughs> I remember those two students. They were exactly <laughs> never <heart>. forget. <laughs> and I'll tell you this. I'll tell I'll tell your listeners this. So I taught one, then two classes for years in the, in one studio. I was paying rent. It was the same model studio, and I had another full time job to pay the bill, so that I wasn't putting all this pressure on myself that I had to earn a living teaching yoga because I wouldn't have built skill then I would have had all that pressure. So I had another job to pay the bills and I did that for years. And over, I think it was about four years into teaching, I had consistently 10 people coming to my classes, including those original two and three people. I had 10 and then we moved to a different city an hour and a half away. And I thought, oh man, I'm going to have to start over with two and then three students. It's going to take me another four years to build. But guess what? Within the first month in my new city, I had consistently 10 people coming to my classes. And what that told me was I have the capacity and skill to teach 10 people. And I brought that with me and the karma or whatever you want to call it. So <laughs> Then and then it grew from there. Then it was, you know, 15 and then 18 and then turning people away, you know, lock the door. There's no space. Um, and that, well, that again was about niching and knowing who my people are and having a skill for business and, and that other piece of being good at what I do, which took that four or five years. You said five years. It was about, like I said, four years to have consistent 10 people. But once I had that, took a little time to rebuild in a new city, but there's that magic factor that I brought with me too. I think teachers should know. Takes time. Do you currently require people to sign up for a series with you? Or do you allow drop-ins? So I just handed my drop-in class off to one of my students who's now a teacher. But I have had for the last, I think I counted 12 years, I've had an ongoing drop-in class. Now, this is just not <laughs> what's the, just one. Yes, everything else was a series. It's not something I recommend. Drop, drop necessarily. In. Yeah, I mean, it's a real bitch to show up for that. Now, I will say that that's that's been 
though it's hard to show up for the same class again and again and again, what I say 12 years, Wednesday nights at 5.30 <laughs> and getting subs and, you know, two long maternity leaves and travel to India and that I kept that class going through all of that. And now it's still going under someone else. I don't necessarily recommend that. I usually tell other teachers, do series. <laughs> we need to do series, but we also need to have, I mean, to use a marketing term, a funnel. We need a funnel. Yeah. For some people, a drop-in class. If you are at a location that gets a lot of traffic, right? then a drop-in class could be a a wonderful funnel for your series classes. Absolutely. Oh, and for oh. private sessions and workshops and everything else that you do. But if you're teaching a drop-in class at a place that does not get a lot of traffic, then it's really a losing proposition because you're yeah. committing to being there and nobody else is. That's right. That's right. And that's why that can really be a struggle. And again, that class, like I said, it had, it had momentum because it'd been going on for so long. Literally, some of the people still come to that class that have been coming since the very first year. So have been coming to that class inconsistently for 12 years, inconsistently because it's drop-in, not a series. They do most students pay for a package. Very few people pay uh, the single class rate, but I allow them to use that package as they, you know, in their own time. It's not time sensitive. No expiration. Right. I will add that we didn't talk about the fact that I do, we have at the studio, what we call a new Yogi Pass. So they pay $30 for three classes as a new student to our studio. And they can use that pass for any applicable class, because not all teachers necessarily want their class to be open to that. So when they open the schedule, they'll see which classes they can use that new Yogi Pass for. And that gives them a little chance to taste test the different time slots, the different teacher flavors. And that money is kept by the studio. So I do use that 30 bucks that comes in from new uh, students to help pay for things like the website, the studio cleaning, all of that stuff. And for teachers, it's a way for them to win over a new student who then pays for a package with them. So most people are usually up for doing that. And that's also our, as you said, our funnel. That gets people in the door. And the thing is, again, because our teachers are good at what they do and are engaging in that relationship and that communication directly with students, we find that about... 80% of people that get that new Yogi Pass continue with an ongoing pass after that. That's a great statistic. That's yeah. really, that's high. That's it awesome. Is. Yeah. <laughs> so is there anything else that a yoga teacher who's considering this type of a business model, any other things that they really need to know before diving in and making a commitment to this? I would say just that though I said it's low admin, it's not no admin. That's the, you know, it's definitely, there are a certain number of hours per month that are allotted for me to be doing things like writing up lease agreements, managing the schedule, emailing with teachers, as my husband says, herding cats because 
hurting yoga teachers is not dissimilar from hurting cats. I know you know what I'm talking about, right? So, um, you know, reminding them even sometimes that, you know, hey, your rent didn't come in. All these little details of running a business, it's way less than other models, but it's not none. So you don't have to own a studio to be a yoga teacher. That's one way. So really know that, um, you know, for me, this worked because for so many years, because I wanted to have my own reliable space to teach in, but I didn't want to bear the brunt of the full rent and I didn't want to be alone. I wanted to have community of other teachers and I wanted to have other teachers that I could easily send students to as an experienced teacher. I can send new students to some of the other teachers. And then when those students are ready for someone else, they can send them up to me. So Owning a studio is not the only way to be a yoga teacher uh, and know that there is a little bit of admin even with this model. <laughs> and one of the benefits that you get for your efforts is the prime slots. You know, you get your first dibs right of, of the time. So that's, yeah. that's a big, that's a big bonus. If you have a lot of programs that you want to run because timing and coordination of timing is a huge piece of administering as a teacher your own programs. Yeah, that's exactly why I said yes to the studio when it fell into my lap because I, at that time, was teaching full-time, mostly in that space. And I thought, I don't want to have to negotiate figuring out space elsewhere or driving to a bunch of different spaces because there's not that as much time available in one place. And not to mention that the form of yoga that I teach is very prop heavy <laughs> and everything is there in one place. And so, yeah, there's a lot to be said for having my home base and being in charge of the schedule and giving myself the slots that work for me in my life. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Um. <laughs> um. Kaya, where can listeners find out more about you? So my website is yoga with Kaya all spelled out, K-A-Y-A, yogawithkaya.com. The studio site, if they want to see um, the rentals page and how all that looks, is emeryvilleyoga.com. Emeryville is the name of the town. And we will include these links in the show notes. Great. Thank you so much, Kaya. This was an incredibly fun and informative conversation. I hope that it sparks some inspiration for more cooperative yoga studio business models. And I think both of us are super interested if anybody else has creative or unique ways of organizing yoga teachers and supporting yoga teachers. I'm, I'm super passionate about this. I really want yoga teachers to be supported and to have the, the not just the skills, but the tools, I guess is what we would say to allow them to center yoga in their lives and to make a living teaching yoga in a way that makes sense. Yeah. Tools are useless if they're just sitting in a box, right? <laughs> they need those skills for getting them out of the box and using them and delivering those tools to their, to their niche. <laughs> I love sharing all of this with you. It was really fun. Kaya is such an inspiring example. 
I love how she didn't just go and do what everybody else was doing. First of all, she went to India and she learned a completely different style of yoga. I would love to get her back on the podcast someday to hear kind of more of her origin story of how she got into the Sri yoga. And then when she decided to make it a business, she really was creative and thoughtful and did it step by step and didn't do what everybody else was doing. So because of that, she has a thriving business. And I know that all of us yoga teachers are capable of doing this too, if we're willing to step outside of our comfort zone and try different things. If you like hearing stories and like the process of thinking outside the box, make sure that you listen to episode 20 which is literally called Take Your Yoga Biz Outside the Box. And in that episode, I help a yoga teacher named Allison Whipple create two signature workshops that align with her values and support her financially. If you would like my eyes on your business this year, there are just a few spaces left to work with me in 2018. For most of us yoga teachers, we know that January is a super busy time, and I do not want you to wait until 2019 to plan out the first part of 2019 because the time to set yourself up to really take advantage of the extra momentum that January provides is right now. If you want my help to create a plan so that you can approach 2019 more purposefully than you did 2018, I would love for you to schedule a strategy session with me at teachingyoga.net slash coaching. As you can hear, especially in my on-air coaching podcast episodes, working one-on-one with yoga teachers to make their businesses profitable and nourishing is my favorite thing to do. Next week's episode is for all the pioneers out there teaching yoga in areas where it isn't as popular yet. It is an on-air coaching call with Valerie Anderson, who lives in rural Wyoming, I think even if you live in a more urban area, you'll love hearing about the different challenges that she faces and also the ways that a lot of the mindset work of creating a successful business is still the same. Until then, I hope you have an amazing week. Keep learning, growing, and sneaking outside your comfort zone. And of course, remember to take time for your personal yoga practice.